0: Hi everyone, this is Haley from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Satish Raj and Nazia Sheikh, both from the University of Calgary. During this conversation, Dr. Raj and Nausea discuss initial orthostatic hypotension, particularly how these patients present in the clinic, the mechanisms that underlie the condition, and how IOH can be managed with a non-pharmacological approach. Let's jump in. First up, is this really a problem? Doesn't this just happen to everybody every once in a while?
1: So I'll, I'll handle this. Yes and no. You know, I guess, you know, if you actually take a step back, one can take a philosophical view of syncope in general. There's lots of good data now that 40%, perhaps, of the population will faint at some point in their life. And 40%, you can question, is that really a problem? And one would argue for the person that faints once in a life, it's probably not a huge thing that we need to medicalize in a big way. But about half of those people will faint more than once in their life. And then a smaller percentage will faint frequently and incessantly. And so I think, you know, if this happens, you know, with very mild lightheadedness and it's a, a very rare event and you hold on, you move on, then no, I, I certainly am not advocating that everyone that gets a bit rushed to come and see me in clinic. But there are patients in whom this happens frequently, in whom this happens uh, to the point where they're actually having syncope to whom they actually modify their activities or avoid activities because of concern about this. And in at least one, actually it's not just one, in in some cases not as common, young mothers who are afraid of holding their children, their babies, because they're afraid of dropping them because of this. So I think for some people it is a problem, and and that needs to be understood, validated, and, and I guess most importantly, we can help them treat it.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And then another question that we have here, this one relates more to different populations that this seems to happen to. So the person's asking or rather stating endurance athletes and other athletes seem to experience this quite often. Can you comment on maybe why this is?
1: Yes, I I, I certainly don't have any specific data on it, but we think that this reaction is triggered, you know, with the initial large muscle activation with thigh muscle activation and a sudden shift in blood flow. And I suspect that highly trained athletes probably are able to shift blood to these large muscles that they be using, you know, in their in their sport more efficiently than than I would but that's purely speculation that there are brilliant exercise physiologists that study those athletes in detail, and I haven't done so.
0: Okay. Another question here. Do you ever measure respiration during orthostatic testing?
1: Not routinely, and and perhaps we should more. I mean, I think we we are getting more interested in issues around hyperventilation. Julian Stewart has done some nice work pointing out that, that this might be an issue.
2: Okay. Can IOH be used as a proxy marker of sympathetic tone? I guess in a way, yes. So the reason that IOH is transient and it recovers on its own is because it's usually occurring in people who are otherwise healthy. So generally their autonomic stress system is intact. If, for example, someone's blood pressure didn't recover, there could be a, a number of reasons for it. And one of them could be that their sympathetic activity isn't increasing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't necessarily tell us for sure that it's the sympathetic tone that's faulty. Yeah.
0: Have you noticed any sex differences in the prevalence of OH? And is this consistent across subtypes? You've mentioned that IOH is often more common in young
2: people, so there's clearly some age differences here. For IOH specifically, at least for our study, we weren't able to study any males, but we did find that over 90% of the volunteers that we had were female, but we would have to look into the males as well to see if there are sex differences specifically in IOH. Wonderful. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know if
1: there's brilliant data on this. I mean, as I was, was going to say, from our clinic, I, I think there's probably a slight female predominance, but but it's certainly not as highly skewed as some disorders like postural tachycardia syndrome. We definitely see this in, in males. It definitely skews more to younger folks that are often otherwise quite healthy than, than older folks.
0: Right. Another question here. You've not said anything about fluid status. Surely this is also relevant?
1: I guess I'll handle this. I wasn't sure if nausea wanted to jump in. So we we didn't formally assess fluid status. I will say in terms of our treatment approaches, because of our clinic in general and the disorders we see, I am a big fan of good hydration, perhaps excessive hydration in general. But I must say, in terms of the treatment approach for these patients, I push that a lot less than some of these maneuvers that nausea was speaking about. I don't know that there's data on whether the hydration status, what direct effect that has.
2: Yeah, we didn't look into that in our study, but, and I haven't found anything in literature for IOH specifically, but it's been suggested that it could be a possibility, but that but for IOH. Okay. Nazia, you mentioned something about the VOS rating system. Can you briefly explain a little bit more about what this is? Yeah, so it's an orthostatic symptoms rating. So what happens is when the patients stand up, we ask them to rate a, um, nine different symptoms on a scale from zero to 10. So zero being they don't experience symptoms at all, 10 being they experience it the most. So yeah, it's just, it's a good indicator of the burden of symptoms that they're experiencing after each stand. Perfect, thank you so much for that clarification. I think so.
0: So we've got a nice comment here, very nice presentation, um, followed by the question, Is this a condition that can go away by time? So can a patient grow out of this? And is it similar to, well, I guess you've already mentioned this, that it's similar to pots where it affects mostly females, but can people grow out of, grow out of this?
2: Yeah. So again, in literature, it's typically, it typically occurs in young adults. So it does seem to go away as people grow age. And then it does re, reappear in the elderly patients. So we haven't looked into elderly patients. Yeah. It does seem to go away after some time. Perfect.
0: Let's see. Since IOH is so
2: transient,
0: could it be detected without using a Nexfin, but with manual arm
2: blood pressure cuffs instead? There is a paper that was, I think, published in about 2015 that did look into trying to diagnose it with the manual arm blood pressure cuff. And they found that they could do it if they pre-inflated the cuff. But again, it's it's so transient that you could sometimes be missing it if you u- were using a manual arm blood pressure cuff. So I think the finger, finger blood pressure or the continuous beat-to-beat
1: would be the best way to diagnose it, aside from the history taking that Dr. March mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think if you, want, if you want the physiology, if you want to prove that the pressure dropped beyond a certain threshold, you need continuous beat-to-beat blood pressure. Presumably non-invasively, in theory, an art line would work, although the patients probably won't come back to see you ever again. But the history is fairly typical, and when patients get that history, um, we'll often advise even if we don't have rigorous hemodynamic documentation.
0: Okay. Which sensor-based technique is used in these clinical investigations, and did you use any IR-based sensors?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I assume you're referring to near-infrared, and, and the answer is No. We didn't use that. I, I think Nausea didn't show the data and, and may still be playing with it, but we, we did have, I believe, transcranial Doppler. But, but obviously, most of the data that we presented was from ECG and from the continuous blood pressure. There, there is a recent okay. paper looking at sort of NEARS with a similar STAM maneuver for a slightly different purpose. And as that technology becomes more ubiquitous, it, there may be interesting findings there as well with what's going on with the front part of your brain oxygenation.
0: Okay. Do patients with IOH experience symptoms every day, every stand, every few days or less? Can some
2: days be worse than others? So I would say it differs from patient to patient and day to day. Some people experience it maybe like a couple times a week or a couple times a month, whereas other people may experience it almost every time that they stand up. So it can definitely differ between patients. And even within patients, some days can be worse than others. Sure. And I imagine this probably would cause some some challenges in Clinic for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there a moderate or strong correlation between IOH and vasovagal responses? I haven't
2: quite looked into that, so I'm not nausea, sure. Nausea, do
1: you want to share your one experience?
2: Oh, I guess, like
1: so I, one I time. I don't have that. The correlation is, but they, well, go ahead, nausea.
2: I guess, like the participant who fainted during our study,
1: or yeah. So, so I mean, there is there is definitely an overlap, right? So these, I, the presence of IOH doesn't preclude vasovagal syncope and, and doesn't preclude. Pots, but it's a different presentation. In nausea study, there's actually someone that did have a vasovagal episode during her study, which she enjoyed greatly. But I'm not sure I'm not sure that it's an enriched population. Right. So there's overlap, it's not exclusionary, but I, I don't know that the vast majority I don't think the vast majority have necessarily vasovagal syncope of, of any frequency.
0: Okay. Next question here. What is the severity of IOH in type two
2: diabetes patients? I can't say I can't say that I've ever looked into that or come across that, but we did have one patient who did have diabetes as well in our study. But beyond that, I couldn't say.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think um, if, if this, we've had patients with, oh, with type with type. I'm trying to think if we've had patients sort of clinically with type two diabetes, and I think it's possible. I think it's less common for two reasons. One, patients with type two diabetes it's, often are a bit older. They're often sort of you know, getting into middle age or older where this is a bit less common. And, and the, the specific pathology that I expect more, be more concerned about is, is the classical orthostatic hypotension, specifically neurogenic orthostatic hypotension in the diabetic patient. Okay.
0: Do you have any experience or can share any outcomes with COVID-19 patients and IOH?
1: Yeah, we're we're starting to see more Sorry, COVID okay. patients with autonomic and orthostatic complaints in general. I'd say I've seen a lot more with POTS like presentation and, and orthostatic intolerance that's not just transient. We are very soon to embark on a study to try to look at how frequent these different disorders, including IOH, including classical OH, including sort of the orthostatic tachycardia that would meet criteria for POTS, are in some of these COVID so-called long-haul COVID patients.
0: Okay. What about, maybe you can comment on any modifications that you could make to the testing protocol. So this person has asked how to test patients with spinal cord injury who cannot stand. Is it possible to modify the
2: the testing protocol? No, I was just going to say that like the main, I guess, reflex of IOH is that it's a large muscle activation reflex in, in the lower body So if they're unable to perform that, you wouldn't get the rapid vasodilation that occurs from the act of standing in in a spinal cord injury patient.
1: I mean, I would add two things. One, uh, spinal cord injury patients are certainly prone to orthostatic hypotension, but it would be a much more, I would expect it to be much more the classical orthostatic hypotension where the problem isn't a transient reflex, but the problem is the nerve connections themselves providing, I guess, being unable to provide sort of adequate vasoconstriction. And I'd leave it. Okay. I'd leave it at that, except to say one more thing, and that is that if the patients don't have symptoms, it's, it becomes a non-issue.
0: Right? Do you ever see orthostatic hypoten-
2: hypotension as part of a
0: syndrome similar to POTS?
2: Yeah, I think I think Doctor speak speaking this more, but he does get a lot of people in for POTS who actually have IOH, and there was also a study that looked into how common it is for patients with POTS to have IOH and vice versa. And it is quite common actually for people to have both.
1: Yeah, you definitely, I mean, there are two issues with this. One, patients can definitely have both, or I've, I mean, I've certainly seen patients with IOH POTS and vasovagal syncope. So you, you certainly can have multiple versions of these. Not, But I'm not sure they they all do. There are lots of POTS patients that really have their symptoms only chronically and not acutely. The other part of it is that and we, while we focus on the drop in blood pressure, many people, there's a reflex tachycardia. And I think in some patients, there can be an excessive reflex orthostatic tachycardia that can be measured. You know, if you just did a one minute stand and measure the pressure, the heart rate, I think, lags behind. And, and we often get a tachycardia at one minute in some patients that settles as they keep standing. And I think that's sometimes misdiagnosed as POTS. If, if the, if the heart rate comes down and settles and not symptomatic for the rest of the 10 minutes, that initial tachycardia should not be diagnosed as POTS, but I think sometimes is when it's really due to the IOH and the, the reflex tachycardia. So I think there are two reasons for the association, but, but certainly POTS patients can have this also.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of expert answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work offer tips tricks and best practices but most of all share science don't forget to subscribe